Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen DiTrolio Coakley. Today, we bring you a conversation between Jeremy Cruz and Victor Carmona on the Jornada por la Justicia. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. Uh, greetings to our listeners. My name is Jeremy Cruz. I am Assistant Professor of Theology and Religious Studies at St. John's University, and I am joined by Victor Carmona. Uh, Victor will introduce himself briefly in just a moment. Uh, Victor and I are uh, happy to join you for a conversation and to join each other for a conversation about um, a recent event called the Jornada por la Justicia, or Pilgrimage for Justice, which happened from October 11th through the 13th in El Paso, Texas, and, and also extended into Juarez, Mexico, into Ciudad Juarez. Um, Victor and I both teach theology and religious studies, and we both had the privilege of being involved um, and, and participating and in leading the Jornada. And so we want to talk about that. And then we want to have a broader conversation about what is happening at the U.S.-Mexico border and uh, what kinds of organizing and activism are happening in response, both in churches and in uh, communities. And we want to um, invite some reflection and help people think about how they can get involved in this work. So to, to start, I'll say a little bit about myself. Uh, I, I teach uh, social ethics, uh, Christian social ethics at St. John's University. I'm in my sixth year there. And in my research and writing and teaching, my, my work focuses a lot on labor, religion and labor, specifically farm workers and farm worker movements. Um, and I have interests in migration, state violence, uh, economic ethics broadly. And so, um, you know, my, my work is very closely connected to uh, what, what came about in the Jornada por la Justicia. And um, I think Victor can share, uh, as he introduces himself, uh, how his, his background and how his work intersects with this event as well. Good afternoon, everyone, or good day, everyone. So my name is Victor Carmona. I'm an assistant professor of theology and religious studies at the University of San Diego. Um, there I teach Catholic social thought and courses on introductions to Catholic, uh, Catholic theologies. Um, in terms of my work, I, I tend to do work around migration, so theologies of migration, Christian immigration ethics or, or theological ethics of migration, and I'm broadly concerned with, with issues of social justice around migration at the U.S.-Mexico border and in other borders across the world. Thank you, Victor. So let's let's take a few minutes to talk about the Jornada, what happened from October 11th through the 13th in El Paso. Um, for about three months, Latino and Latina Catholic leaders planned a national event which was going to gather people from across the country and take place in El Paso. Uh, that event was designed as, we talked about it as a, as a pilgrimage, it was uh, it was intended to be a journey to the border. And once people arrived, they would participate in a multi-day teach-in 
And so we had workshops, we had uh, major speakers, we had experiences of prayer, of song, of dance. Um, Victor and I actually had the, the privilege of collaborating on one of the projects or on one of the workshops, which uh, was a Know Your Rights workshop. And it was intended for um, uh, people to know their own rights, especially um, relative to um, border enforcement and to encounters with ICE agents. And it was intended as an ally training for people who were um, being in solidarity and in support of um, those who um, were facing often unconstitutional actions by um, ICE agents, immigration and customs enforcement agents. And so uh, part of our work was um, uh, leading these workshops and facilitating discussion around that. And um, so I think first what, what I'd like for us to talk about, Victor, is what were what was your experience? What was your experience of the jornada, the weekend? What stands out to you as something that you really took away from, from this time together? So I took away a sense of, of solidarity with another community from the border. So in my case, I'm a, I'm a Mexican-American. I, I'm from, from the West, Western side of the border in terms of, you know, the Californias. So I'm from, from San Diego, Tijuana, Mexicali, Imperial. So from, from this region. And uh, it was very meaningful to see another border community face the, ch- the challenges and, and all the, the horrors that we're seeing at the border around, around migration. So that was one thing that I took with me. But the other one that I took with me was was a sense of hope. Um, I was I was surprised by the by the energy, the realism, and yet the hope that a lot of the students brought with them. Um, students from from other parts of the country, students from beyond the border. So it was it was hope giving to see students who are not living this experience on a daily basis at the border. Um, it was very hope giving to see and to see them realize that that they share a lot with folks at the border who are going through this, in, including the migrants themselves. Yeah, I I brought um, a couple uh, professors in addition to myself uh, and a couple of university administrators and fourteen students from St. John's and. Uh, many of the students, when we did our formation before the Hornada, shared that they themselves were migrants. You know, they were immigrants to the country, or their parents were. And even they shared that they had never, either they had never been to the border, um, maybe they they came to the country but didn't cross the U.S.-Mexico border, or um, they just shared that even for them being very close to a migrant experience, they said it was really eye-opening. They they uh, they learned a lot about um, what people experience who are attempting to cross um, the southern border, and um, a number of them shared that it put them much in, in much closer emotional connection to the experiences of their parents who crossed mm-hmm. the border, but maybe who had not talked about that experience or that they had never really thought to ask some of the questions surrounding that experience Um, so that was that that was really interesting to me Mm -hmm. Um, you talked about this bringing um, hope Uh, I I remember 
so I, I'm interested to hear, you know, a little more about why this cultivated hope for you. I, I had several people come to me and say, I can't believe how many young people are here. That mm. There were so many, um, mostly from Catholic universities, there were so many university delegations, the Jornada por la Justicia was organized um, almost entirely by people who are working within Catholic institutions, Catholic um, universities, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, ecclesial ecclesial bodies, you know, ministers, etc. But a number shared with me, it is so great to see so many young people. It was, you know, probably at least half of the people there were like college age students, and and um, a number of people talked about feeling hopeful in that. Can you say a little bit about more about why why you left feeling hope? So, for me, so I first started doing ministry or, or working with working with migrants right after college. Actually, um, I went to college at Georgetown in D.C. And I graduated back in 98. So I've been doing this or, you know, trying to do service with migrants um, or, you know, directly or, or indirectly for, for, yeah, 20 years now. And sometimes for folks, I think folks like me and my generation, Gen Xers who've been really giving this their all um, across many, many communities, sometimes it's really easy to lose hope because we've been at this for for nearly 20 years and sometimes it's it's easy to lose hope because things seem to be getting worse instead of of getting better um and some sometimes some of us might lose hope or might feel that this is useless you know trying to push back um against everything that's happening at the border um everything that's you know hurting migrants and refugees and asylum seekers sometimes it's tough to keep going so being in a room full of of young people who are who are taking up this struggle as well as well and who are sharing the load um it's it's liberating at least for me um and in in that way it was it was energizing and it was life-giving and it was and it was hopeful so for me, that's that's very. It was very important. That's that's exciting to hear because uh, I I was on, as you know, the the national planning committee for for the jornada, and one of the things that we were adamant about was that there was going to be Latino, Latina, Latina leadership of this event. That um, it was going to our our one of our main goals was for people to walk away feeling a sense of their their power, their mm-hmm. ability, their capacity to make change. Um, we wanted it to be an encuentro and a learning opportunity, but we said we, we have to take action. We, we, we have to take action because if we don't, how are people gonna feel, how, how are people gonna walk away feeling like they can do something? Yeah. And so we, we partnered with the Hope Border Institute, a Catholic um, uh, uh, organization that attempts to, um, it's inspired by the vision of Catholic social teaching and and, and attempts to um, live that out through work at the border, through, um, through doing migration-related research, through 
doing uh, leadership development and legislative advocacy, lobbying for, for changes in U.S. laws and policies. Um, and so, you know, we, we needed to figure out with the Hope Border Institute, what was the situation on the ground and what type of action made mm-hmm. sense. But we said we have to have some kind of action because we need people to feel a sense of being able to make a difference. That was that was one of our biggest biggest goals. And I think behind behind that concern was, you know, the narrative around the border and around Latinx people in, in the United States is often either that we're the victims, we're passive mm-hmm. victims, and often we are. Or there's a narrative of we're kind of like passive recipients mm-hmm. of big benevolent institutions, the state, the government, or the church. And we wanted to have a, a message that people took away, not just a message, but an experience, was that we're leaders, we have power, we have capacity to make change. And so let's let's talk some about that change. Um, specifically, we, we did a, a public action on Sunday, on um, Saturday night of the Jornada, and the group of nearly 400 people split up, and we had a kind of binational, both sides of the border action. You were, you went into Ciudad Juarez. I stayed in El Paso, and but we had a kind of a march, a procession, and uh, that evening we were on both sides of the border. So, can you um, tell our listeners what your experience was of going with the large group that went into Ciudad Juarez? What what did you see? What did you experience? So we crossed we crossed through one of the bridges into Ciudad Juarez and. Uh, we met with folks who were waiting at the, uh, you know, on that side of the river. They were waiting in, in a, a camp. Um, so it was an encampment and a very rustic uh, setup. Um, and we talked with them. There was a delegation that talked with, uh, I believe it was two or three families who, who then we helped uh, cross into the U.S. so that they may apply for asylum. Uh, I was not part of that smaller smaller group, um, but it was an important thing that that part of the group did. You know, they they walked across, they made sure that they were received because the government right now is instituting a policy called metering, where they only an- allow a certain number of people to cross into the border uh, per day to apply for asylum. So. In my case, a couple of us, we, we sat down and had a conversation with, with two families who were coming in from, from one from Zacatecas, one from, from Michoacan, and they were applying for asylum. They wanted to apply for asylum in the U.S. because the violence in their communities was, was getting you know, beyond the pale in terms of what they were used to. Um, they shared their experiences with, with narcos there, and it was hearing experiences like this is nothing new for me but hearing them in terms of the intensity um, and in terms of the young age of the people sharing those stories that's that's starting it's it's been shifting in the last two years so a lot of these were were teenagers uh it was a young mom um, who her, I think she herself was barely you know, 21, 22. Um, she was caring for her nieces who were very young. And uh, 
and her own daughter. So it was it was an extended family, a la mexicana, you know. So this, even the the notion of who the family was, it, it wasn't a nuclear family. It was la familia, you know, the extended family. And and it was in this case a group of I believe it was it was five five of them, including these two adult women and and you know three three minors with them. Um, and you could see it in the in their eyes. I mean, they're desperate. Yeah. And <laughs> basically, they're being told that Mexico is a safe country for them to to wait. And it's just it's heart wrenching to see and listen to you know to those experiences. So I saw that. Um, and then on the way on the way back, the folks at the Hope Institute, well, the organizers, I think they they did something really beautiful. It was the first time that I that I'm in an experience experience like this where we're asked to bless the bridge as as we're coming back into the u.s um so they had a container with water they had a, a ramita they had an image of our leader of guadalupe and uh then we were invited to bless the bridge um and when i when it was my turn to bless the bridge i i said the prayer in in spanish and uh, for me that was very meaningful because a lot of folks were saying the prayer in english and you know english is is beautiful as well but for me it was also important to say the prayer in Spanish um, because a lot of these folks that's how they that's how they and that's how we speak to God as well in Espanol or Spanglish you know and, and it's it's it was important for me to do that so that was a beautiful experience for me as well and and uh, and I'm great very grateful for the uh, for the organizers to given us the opportunity to to reclaim the sacredness of of bridges, not walls, bridges. Um, so that was very powerful for me. Wow. You mentioned these families. Um, you know, they're they're living on the streets. They're living on tarps or in tents, and they're they're waiting. It, it was three families, uh, fifteen people total, who ended up successfully applying for asylum and as you mentioned we had a small group that accompanied them crossing the border they they advocated for themselves they they declared their uh, credible fear of being in mm -hmm. Mexico and it was really important that those three families were um, uh, it was important that they were there advocating on their own behalf mm -hmm. it was also important that they were accompanied by religious leaders by media because what's been happening at the border is that they, they've essentially found every legal and illegal means to close off the possibility of even applying, even exercising your right to apply for asylum. So that, that's what that metering mm -hmm. process is about. We've heard a lot in the media about the Remain in Mexico policy where people from countries all over the world, if they're attempting to cross from the southern border, they're required, they, they can apply for asylum if when they eventually get through the line that has been slowed to a trickle, yeah. if they apply, they still have to remain in Mexico until their um, asylum application has um, reached a final mm -hmm. decision. And that process can take months and months mm -hmm. and months. What was interesting was that, you know, the basically um, what's happening with Mexicans, primarily indigenous Mexicans seek, seeking asylum, is that they're being forced to remain in Mexico even before they've applied for asylum. And so what's happening is 
people are being forced to stay in the country that they're saying they can establish a credible fear that that it's that it's a threat to their life to be in that country and so um this this action on the border was meant to bring some attention to you know we have the metering we have the remain in mexico process both of these are being talked about in the media but you have a kind of shadow metering system going on as well yeah. because it's it's not it's not legal that the government's doing this um where, where people are being denied the possibility of applying for asylum in order to get out of the the very country that they're scared of the trump administration needs to keep mexican asylum seekers in mexico because it needs the narrative it needs the story that mexico is a safe place for refugees for asylum seekers you you can't uh, you can't force everybody else in the world to remain in mexico if mexico is not a safe place and so they they need this narrative that mexico is a safe place for refugees for migrants for asylum seekers i just want to say that i have the utmost respect and admiration for for border communities on the mexican side because they are most of the folks in in those communities in tijuana mexicali ciudad juarez nogales all of the cities on the mexican side they've been they've been doing everything they possibly can to welcome these folks who are being who are being made to wait at the door by the US government mm -hmm. and these are communities that they themselves are struggling with with their own needs as well so i just want to highlight that that uh, these communities on the mexican side the uh, the agency that they're exercising for the common good, it, it's just, and the solidarity that they're living, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, that was striking to me. Um, so this Saturday, Saturday night action at the Jornada, it wasn't all what was happening in the Juarez side with the encampments. It was also, we had almost half of our group who stayed behind in El Paso and did a procession um, along the wall and the communities that are along the wall that the Trump administration is building and walls walls that were there you know, from previous presidencies. Um, we thought through multiple times what was the best way to do a prayer, a procession in the El Paso side. And I still think I'm wrestling with how to talk theologically, how to talk from a perspective of faith about what this experience was. What does it mean to call the borderlands where all this violence is happening a sacred site, a destination for a pilgrimage? What does it mean to say we're going to a pilgrimage to this sacred site where all this violence is happening? And I think initially um, I was only able to think about it, you know, as a Christian, the border is the cross. The, bro the border is the sign of state violence. The border is its death. And so initially we talked about doing the stations of stations of the frontera, stations of the border on these border communities, the stations of the cross, to talk about the violence and trauma and suffering. But the more we worked with the Hope Border Institute and the more we got to know people living in these communities, it was very clear that's not the whole story, that life is springing up every day around this violence. Um, resurrection is happening. Uh, there's a whole bunch of rich history and cultura and, and, and people who are resilient and persistent and who are getting organized and who are fighting back. And so it's not just a, you know, it didn't, at some point it didn't make sense to 
pray in these border communities just just telling our Christian story about how we think about God and connect with God in the midst of trauma and suffering because there's a lot more there. And so we ended up praying a little bit differently and, and we, we used um, as inspiration, um, there's an organization, the New Sanctuary Coalition in New York City, it does every week, uh, it does a march around the, uh, the federal courts and the ICE headquarters uh, does a procession called the Jericho Watch, uh, Jericho Walk. And the Jericho Walk evokes the story of the walls of the city of Jericho falling in the in the Jewish scriptures. And it's this, um, you know, it's a it's meant to be a story that that evokes um, praying for walls that inhibit life to come down. Mm-hmm. And so um we engaged in that prayer, but we were also able to, you know, we were doing this kind of taking in and experiencing, you know, we were praying and hearing music in the neighborhoods and we're seeing children running around. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, uh, it was really beautiful to be able to, to pray and to tell the story of these communities on both sides of the border, knowing, knowing that asylum seekers are being accompanied across the bridge coming from one direction and we're on the other side um, praying, uh, praying, uh, for these, for these communities that are, that are receiving people. When I imagined y'all doing the Jericho walk as we were crossing the bridge, it was, it was the sense of there's the church at work yeah. everywhere in every which way with different people at once, you know, and we might not exactly know who's doing what, when, where, right. But, but you have to trust that it's happening, that the spirit is moving folks. Um, so for me, crossing the bridge as y'all were doing the Jericho walk, again, it gave me a sense of hope because I can't do the Jer- I couldn't do the Jericho walk at the same time. I could only cross the bridge, mm-hmm. right? But but in you doing that and me doing this, it was like, there we go, you know, there there we are um, as church together in different you know different places, different spots, and and uh, that's pretty. For me, that was a microcosm of what's happening every day around the U.S.-Mexico, the Mexico-Guatemala border, the Guatemala-Honduras border. I mean, it's it's there's people and ministers, volunteers, full time doing you know so many things at shelters and human rights centers, and and we don't know who's doing what exactly. But but I really do. Like, if I were to look at everything we're doing through heaven's eyes. Um, it's hope giving, you know, so the Jericho walk for me was, I, I don't know how y'all came up with that idea, but, <laughs> you know, beyond this experience in New York, but I think the border needed that. Mm. I really do. So that's beautiful. So why don't, why don't we close by giving our listeners maybe some, a few more examples of uh, people doing this kind of work who's who's doing border related work um, that doesn't necessarily have to be in mm-hmm. border towns I mean we we definitely experienced when we were in El Paso that the U.S. is attempting to extend its border mm-hmm. further south through various policies with Mexico and Guatemala and uh, really the mission of immigration and customs enforcement is to extend the border north into every community in the country uh, in the form of um, raids and and taking people um, 
uh, into custody uh, and really instilling fear and terror in communities, uh, the, the border is thickening. So mm-hmm. uh, who, who do you see doing important work, whether it's in the church or in community-based organizations that um, you would like to invite our listeners to uh, pay attention to, to connect with, get involved with, um, donate to in various ways? So there are multiple kinds of, of groups and organizations. Um, you've got direct service providers like you know the Lower Rio, Rio Grande Valley. Um, you also have you know, so Catholic charities and others who, who uh, have shelters for for families and, and so on, especially as they're going through the through the migration process or the asylum seeking process. But I also like to invite folks, especially in the audience who are bilingual or trilingual. Um, there are um, legal aid agencies all across the U.S., including at the border and, and beyond, who are providing legal legal aid, legal assistance to folks as they're going through the asylum-seeking process. It is labor-intensive work, and it requires that everything be in English. Everything. So they're always looking for volunteers who speak Spanish, but also increasingly languages from other, you know, f- from, a, from a multiplicity of, of cultures in, in Mexico and Central America and South America, uh, First Nations languages, uh, Mixteco, Zapoteco, all, all. So they're always looking for folks. So if, if in the audience there are folks who, who speak Spanish or any other language, or if you have friends who speak Arabic or, or any other language from any other parts of the world, um, please consider volunteering. Uh, they need you. It's difficult work, but it's it's uh, it's important work because you're basically helping migrants and asylum seekers speak for themselves and defend themselves. So they need that. Um, so that would be something that I would definitely invite the audience to consider. Al Otro Lado is one organization that has mm-hmm. been receiving people to do that kind of translation translation work at the border. I believe Casa they're based Cornelia here in San Diego. They're based here well. in San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would just add that um, there are good Catholic organizations, as you said, doing um, meeting basic needs, providing service, and there are also organizations such as. Um, the Jesuit Refugee Service that, that do work um, at the level of systemic change, specifically focused on lobbying and advocating for law, law and policy changes. Mm-hmm. I think that another important thing to think about is that there are, and this is often done on a very local level, I, I can think of Jewish organizations mm-hmm. and synagogues. I've been encouraging Catholics to get more involved in this work, and I know a number of Catholic community organizers who similarly have been um, encouraging people to do the work of direct action, some of the kinds of things we tend to talk about as activism that's not necessarily focused on legislative change. So for example, um, there are Jewish groups that are doing um, sit-ins and occupations of Amazon stores because Amazon has... um, business connections to the um, federal organizations that are um, carrying out detentions and surveillance and raids against migrant communities. Um, 
there are, you know, so there, there are conversations and connections between local organizations that are beginning mm-hmm. to happen that look like um, forms of disrupting either migrant, you know, family detention, child detention, or that look like um, the disruption of uh, ICE, ICE detention actions or ICE um, arrest actions. Uh, the uh, one example in the, in the Catholic in the Catholic world, there was uh, there's a group of organizations based in Washington D.C. that um, joined us at the Jornada that um, they had previously uh, engaged in civil disobedience in mm. the Capitol building. You had a bunch of you know Catholic sisters laying down and <laughs> yeah. getting arrested in the U.S. Capitol. Um, so you know there there are a variety of ways you know Catholic charities meeting you know. Uh, basic needs when people are first crossing and you know in the months after you have people doing um, legislative lobbying if if um, if that's your strength and something you're interested in there are groups doing um, various forms of direct action and and community-based activism the the last thing I want to recommend is that people get involved and you can do this on a volunteer basis or as a short-term employee get involved with the 2020 census. It is crucial for migrant communities that um, that they have an accurate count in the census. The Trump administration has attempted and the, the courts have blocked um, several attempts to undermine the effectiveness of the 2020 census. Um, it's really important that communities have an accurate count of how many people live in their communities because that's what determines um, how aid dollars are allocated. It also has an impact on um, how much representation communities have within Congress. And so, uh, and, and that's, another, um, that's another form of civic engagement that requires people who can speak a variety of languages so that they can connect with people um, uh, and communicate with people in the in the census process. So uh, the last thing I would recommend, if if direct if direct action, you know, getting in the streets is not your thing, and and lobbying politicians for law legal changes Cold is not points. your thing, and doing <laughs> um, direct service with people who've um, crossed the border in recent months is not your thing, get involved with the census. The 2020 census is so important for um, meeting the basic needs of migrant communities, but also um, creating uh, equitable representation at in various levels of government. Victor, thank you for being thank you, Jeremy. part of this conversation. It was a, it was a pleasure to be with you and to be able to um, lead workshops with you and pray with you in in El Paso and to be able to continue the conversation with you and with all of our listeners on this podcast. Thank you. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.